This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Every morning at about this time, we learn something new and something fascinating. And this morning, it's all about deja vu, or actually, I should say the counterpart to deja vu. Ah, you didn't know there was a counterpart. Well, this is called Jamais Vu, and we're going to learn all about it with the help of our guest, Dr. Akira O'Connor, Senior Lecturer for the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St. Andrews. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. What is Jamais Vu? Jamais Vu is the inappropriate sensation of unfamiliarity for something that you know should feel familiar. Can you give me an example? Like, when would I feel this? (laughs) Okay, um, so people will most often have experienced feeling this when they've written or stared at a word over and over. So what a pe- lot of people report is that if they're writing the same word over and over again, the word starts to break up. It starts to, to kind of separate into, into its component letters. It stops having the kind of fluency that the word has normally when you look at it the first time. And, and some people say that it, it kind of loses its meaning as well. Okay. When you were just saying that, I had such a feeling of recognition because I have had that happen to me. It's where you look at a word and all of a sudden you're kind of like, how have I never recognized this word before? Mm, Yeah. Um, So a a lot of people, people in my generation and older have probably had it if you've ever been asked to write lines out at school. Yes. Um, So writing lines would be, you know, it's what Bart Simpson is doing on the chalkboard in in the credits for The Simpsons. Um, (laughs) And if you choose, instead of writing a sentence out uh, word by word, if you, if you kind of opt for a different approach and write the individual words down the page, a lot of the time people will have had their first experiences of jamais vu like that. Interesting. So what is happening in our brains when this happens? Okay, so what we suspect is happening is... Uh, something called semantic satiation. That is, uh, semantic is to do with meaning, satiation is to do with um, getting full or overfull. And when we repeat the word over and over, we're kind of activating and activating and activating the meaning associated with that word. And we suspect that what's happening is that there comes a point when that meaning being activated just can't happen anymore. So it just essentially loses meaning because you can't activate the meaning anymore. And so how do we get that back? Right. Well, usually it's, 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 just, a, it's just a bit of, um, bit of time. It's, it's um, looking away. It's giving yourself a break from it. It's, it's making sure that um, you, you kind of distract yourself from that repetitive process. So how revolutionary was the discovery of this, of Jamais Vu? Okay, so psychology has been through a few kind of ebbs and flows uh, 
we in the kind of 1800s there was a lot of interest in these kinds of subjective experiences and then in the the 1900s so into the 20th and the beginning of the 21st centuries psychology kind of veered away a little bit from from subjective experiences they were a little too freudian a little too uh, unfalsifiable um so when we started doing work on this in the early 2000s, we thought that we'd discovered uh, something new. When in fact, if you were to look at the literature from 100 years ago, it had actually been done before. So I, I guess um, psychology research, like, a, like a, a, a lot of kind of fashionable things, comes in trends. Things come and go. Uh, we thought we'd discovered something new, but it was actually a, 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 a new look at something that had been around for quite a while. And I understand this has actually won some awards, too. That's right. Um, we were uh, we were the proud recipients of the Ig Nobel Prize for for <laughs> literature. Uh, something of a, a tongue in cheek award, given that we were getting people to write words out over and over. Um, but yeah, that that uh, announcement was was made uh, late last week, and it was it was certainly a lovely thing to hear. Doctor O'Connor, I guess the thing to remember about something like this is that it may seem relatively simple and straightforward, but it, does it not just still tell us something new about how our brain works? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that the most fascinating thing about studying dissociative experiences like this, experiences where um, where the, the norm, normally kind of synchronous uh, aspects of our consciousness seem to dissociate and break apart, is that it tells us that our conscious experience is made up of so many separate uh, sensations, separate inputs that normally work so seamlessly together, um, so seamlessly that we don't notice they're separate. It's only when they break apart that we start to realize that, um, that there are so many fascinating aspects of, of, um, of what makes our everyday mundane experience. Now, can this be linked to other things? Like, can we say, oh, maybe this is the beginnings of something else in the brain, like like OCD? Um, well, there are certainly there are certainly certain um, certain medical conditions, certain psychological conditions where you see more or less of this. So, for example, we know that um, people who experience temporal lobe epilepsy will often experience chamay vu as part of a pre seizure aura, um, but on the whole, it's, it's not a marker of, of any kind of unhealthy process. In fact, I think it might be an indicator that you've actually got quite, um, quite a healthy set of fact-checking, um, error-checking uh, procedures going on in your brain because what your brain is actually doing is telling you, this feels strangely familiar, even it's strangely unfamiliar, even though it is familiar to me. So you you don't think the word you don't actually think the word isn't real. You just kind of notice uh, that mm -hmm. that something a little bit funny has gone on. Okay, so then what what are you still curious about here? What questions do you still have? Oh, so we've put a lot of work into uh, into researching experiences um, like this, but I focused more on déjà vu. Um, déjà vu being the inappropriate sensation of familiarity for something that shouldn't be familiar. This has got um, this is the kind of reverse of that, as you said in the intro. But um, we've put far less into understanding it. But because we've got a procedure that generates it so easily, we might be able to 
uh, try and do some of the stuff that we've been doing with Deja Vu a little more easily uh, with Chamez Vu. So there's a lot of mileage in, uh, in the experimental work that we could do to try and understand what exactly is going on with the consciousness of memory. It's fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Dr. Akira O'Connor, Senior Lecturer for the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St. Andrews, teaching us this morning all about jamais vu. Have you ever had that happen to you where you're like, is this a new word? Have I never seen this word before? And if you've written lines before, as he pointed out, you probably have had it happen. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now to the latest developments in the situation between Canada and India. Now this, of course, after Prime Minister Trudeau accused the government of India of involvement in the killing of Canadian Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijar. Nijar was killed three months ago at the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara in Surrey. So it brought about a situation in Ottawa that you rarely see. The leaders of the Liberals, Conservatives and the NDP on the same side of an issue. This news came as Canada expelled a top-level Indian diplomat from Canada, and this morning, India retaliated by expelling a Canadian diplomat. Let's get the latest on this situation in Ottawa now with David Aiken, our chief political correspondent for Global News. David, good morning. Good morning, Simi. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Boy, this came as a real shocker yesterday, I guess. What is the latest on that this morning? It did come as a shock yesterday, but in retrospect, when we think about Prime Minister uh, Trudeau's recent trip to India for the G20 meetings, uh, now some things start to fall in place. We know, for example, that at those meetings, uh, Canada sort of abruptly announced uh, cancellation of trade missions and uh, cessation of trade talks. And we now know why. That's because, as the Prime Minister Trudeau himself said yesterday, he was bringing up the evidence that Canadian officials had gathered about India's complicity in this murder to India Prime Minister Narendra Modi himself. So the two met, and uh, this was something that Trudeau confronted Modi with. We're also learning yesterday from our public safety minister, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, that our top national security official, Jody Thomas, she traveled to India to speak to her counterparts in Indian intelligence to say, listen, we've got the drop on you. You guys were involved in this killing. And it looks like the response from Prime Minister Modi and Indian security officials was not sufficient, not not to the liking of, of the Canadian government. And that's why we saw this extraordinary moment yesterday in the House of Commons uh, when all three party leaders, notably, of course, Jagmeet Singh, who, of course, as I think everybody knows, is is uh, a sick person himself, uh, gave a very impassioned speech in the House of Commons, spoke in Punjab as well, in Punjabi as well, uh, briefly in the House. Um, all, all parties are on side. 
uh, saying this is a threat to Canada's sovereignty. Now the prime minister is off to the United Nations today. It's a pre-planned trip. It's the UN's Leaders Week. This is going to be top of mind for many leaders because this has major geopolitical implications. The U.S. has been trying to get India to be a strategic counterweight to China in the Indo-Pacific, and the White House has sort of overlooked some of the increasing authoritarian tendencies of Indian PM Modi, and uh, and now this complicated relationship of India with the West. There's a lot of moving parts to this story. Boy, it sure sounds like it. So what do we know about what the Prime Minister has told the leaders of other countries? Because he, he did reach out to some of them, didn't he? Yes. All we know is uh, he told them more than he's told us or put on the public record. Uh, yesterday in the House and afterwards uh, uh, with uh, government officials, uh, all, all they would speak about was, quote, credible evidence collected by Canadian intelligence authorities. But one has to assume that more than more details have been passed on to our allies. Um, certainly there's, again, when we speak of the global implications, as I know everybody in Metro Vancouver knows, Canada has a gigantic sick population that finds its roots in the Punjab in India. Um, but so does Australia. So does the UK. Very big uh, diaspora populations. And both uh, leaders in those countries are worried about the stifling of free speech, free expression among their citizens. So I'm certain that Prime Minister Trudeau would have been telling uh, leaders in those countries more details. Certainly the Five Eyes intelligence system, that's our intelligence gathering among our allies, is sharing information about this uh, because there's a crime certainly has been committed in Canada and Canadian authorities still want to bring whatever individual was involved in that crime to justice. And of course, as you know, there's nobody yet been charged in that murder. Now, David, how extraordinary is this? Has Canada ever done something like this before that you can think of? Well, it, it, it's extraordinary. There's no question about it. And, and it's extraordinary because there's been great hopes for the strengthening of the Canada-India relationship because India is the world's largest democracy. Um, there, India is committed to trade, for example. Maybe not the kind of free trade we would like, but India is, because it's a democracy, is committed to upholding international norms, the international rule of law. And that is something that the prime minister was looking for from India. That's what Prime Minister Trudeau was saying yesterday. He's looking for India to acknowledge these norms. India, of course, as we know, and, you know, I, I, I was, I've, been, I've been in India a couple of times with Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and the Indian press can be incredibly uh, hypersensitive, defensive, when there is any hint of India being criticized. And that is certainly the case right now. I mean, if you read, uh, you know, some titles like the Hindustan Times today, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada generally being ripped as uh, harboring Palestinian terrorists and so on. This is not new. This is something that's been going on for, for ages and ages. The last time relations between India and Canada were this bad, you could argue they're even worse now, was when India developed a nuclear bomb using Canadian technology back in the 1970s when Pierre Trudeau uh, gave India can-do technology to be used for peaceful purposes and India then used it uh, to develop a weapon. Stephen Harper's first trip to India was to renew that nuclear relationship. And I remember I was there in the, on the ground, and, and we, we asked in a rare press conference, the Indian prime minister at the time, you know, what guarantees do, does Canada have this time that India wouldn't use it for nuclear, uh, for, for weapons technology? And as I mentioned, the Indian press just hit our heads off for even having the temerity to ask that question. So... 
right now, uh, India-Canada relations at a, right there at, at the worst it's ever been. David, thank you very much for that update this morning. Sure, no problem. This is Mornings with Simi. And now for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, who's filling in for Von Palmer this week. Now, Rob, there's always something for us to talk about. We're looking for an update here, I guess, on what happened with NDP MLA Adam Walker. Yeah, it's a complex situation, it sounds like. And we got more of a what didn't happen with him uh, from the premier yesterday, a series of what he didn't do versus, versus what he actually apparently did. But uh, we know from the premier that it, uh, this offense that caused him to be ejected from caucus uh, was not sexual harassment. The premier kind of came out and said that it's not an offense in which he's been criminally charged with anything or is facing criminal sanctions. Um, so that, I guess there's a whole bunch there that, that we can rule out. He had to sort of uh, piece together through kind of what was sort of half said and inferred to kind of get a better clear of what a picture of what appears to be happening here. And then also buried in MLA Adam Walker's receipts, which we have all paid for his receipts of his um, sort of constituency office spending is some interesting legal uh, expenses, $1,600 in legal fees that were incurred earlier this year around a grievance process involving uh, one of his staff members in his constituency office. And there's all sorts of, it's, it's kind of severed out, but um, there's words that are in these receipts from the lawyer's office. So things about um, MLA Walker trying to go to someone's doctor for um, some type of information uh, what? A staff member, That's yeah, a, staff, a staff member who's trying to go on leave, uh, a BCGEU grievance. There's a weird reference to a workplace impairment policy, uh, and all sorts of things in this uh, these legal receipts. So it appears to kind of head off in that direction. There's there's obviously been some incident uh, in MLA Walker's office, uh, and uh, this HR complaint. That was filed earlier this year, which has led to an investigation, has ended up uh, with him out of the NDP. So I, I don't know if we have the full picture yet. Uh, at talking to Mr. Walker yesterday, he said he can't talk about it. He's going through a grievance process, which appears to be through the BCGEU, which represents the staff in his office. He hopes that the grievance process clears his name. But... Um, <laughs> that is that is what we know as of this morning. So, okay, so a very messy situation. Yeah, so the grievance process has to do with the situation in the constituency office. What about his ejection from the caucus? Is there any grievance process for that? No. No, that's just the pleasure of the premier. You know, you can get ejected from caucus for anything. You can look the premier uh, uh, you know, the wrong way and out you go. Uh, so... I, whether he's ever invited back in, I guess, is um, going to depend entirely on he seems to think he can clear his name through the grievance process and that he, when oh, I talked wow. to him yesterday, Sounds messy. Doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't think the premier should have come out and said anything yet because it hasn't been settled in his mind. Um, so that, that, is, that is where we stand on that. I will say, you know, like in the past, um, 
there have been MLAs who have done really um, unkind things to their staff, I think. And I guess I'll give David Eby credit for kind of, he's almost like laying a new line down in the sand and saying whatever's going on in this office, which he knows more than we do, is not okay. And he's not going to allow an MLA in his caucus who treats people a certain way and who ends up in this gigantic uh, implosion in his office. Where in the past, I think we have seen a lot of party leaders just sort of let bad behavior or alleged bad behavior go because that's politics and that's just the way it is. And the ends justify the means. You don't want to give your enemies any uh, quarter and you don't want to look weak. Um, so I think he's, I think the premier's trying something slightly new here, huh. but uh, we'll, we will see how that goes over. That's really interesting then from that perspective and that this is different. This is this is a, like the new leader of the party saying, you know what, this isn't going to work on my watch. Yeah. And in the past, um, you know, in, in the very recent past, <laughs> in, in the very, very <laughs> so, recent past. You're so diplomatic. Uh, you know, uh, there have been politicians who have treated the people around them horribly in any other workplace um in any other profession they would have been fired and they weren't fired because they were cabinet ministers or important mlas at a time when you know there's a minority government and you can't afford to fire someone and behavior kind of is allowed to exist and i think what's different here is with a clear majority and a new premier and a set of values, I guess, um, he doesn't want to stand for it. And so what might have been the situation that is, you know, and we don't know the full scope, but uh, what might have been a situation that uh, could have stood in the past doesn't stand now. So it'll be interesting to see because not everyone, I think, in caucus, in his caucus, is going to necessarily understand that. If you're a veteran politician and you've watched people do awful things, and survive and here's someone who may not have done something quite as awful but doesn't um, you're going to wonder about that changing and shifting values so uh, i think he's sending a message to his caucus with this and it'll be interesting to see how that goes now rob could you please explain to me what this housing announcement was all about yesterday <laughs> well the yeah it was part of it was pretty boring there was like a new guide to uh, building a secondary suite in your home, which, uh, you know, doesn't really warrant the premier and everyone yeah. coming out to a, a press conference. So it was like a one-stop permit shop, which we already knew uh, was being created. But I think it was more of a kind of kickoff of the Union BC municipalities meeting where housing is a number one topic. And so the premier wanted to sort of reannounce uh, a couple of things. What I found interesting is buried sort of within that is a document on the government's website that lays out sort of the details of a new program I think a lot of people are going to be interested in, which is the government helping you pay to build a secondary suite in your home. So if you have a house, you think your basement might be a good suite that you could rent out, but you haven't kind of gone through that process, there's a program that's starting in April, and it will match 50% of the cost of your renos with a forgivable loan up to 40 grand. So you get 40 grand free. Um, But there are some rules here. You have to have a maximum household income. So everyone in the house uh, of under $209,000. 
you have to have a property that's worth less than 2.1 million. And most importantly, you have to agree to rent your new suite at below market rates for five years. So right now in Vancouver, that would mean you'd be renting your one bedroom at $1,500 or your two bedroom at, at almost $1,900 a month for five years in exchange for the government's cash to help you build this suite in your house. And it's a interesting program. It's going to open in April. Uh, I wonder what the uptake will be. The government estimates, yeah. they think maybe 3,000 people will, will, will take them up on this. I don't know. To me, it's kind of one of those ones where it's like you can see both sides of it. You, the government's helping to increase the value of a house, for sure. Like, yeah, but it's so term. narrow, right? Like all of those yeah. different uh, qualifications are so narrow. Yeah, it only uh, the NDP government loves to income test things. We've talked about this before. They love to income test because they cannot fathom the idea of helping people of a certain income bracket. Like if you reach a certain point and they just don't want to do anything with you, you're too wealthy. They want to help wealthy people. And their problem has always been determining what wealthy is. And I guess in Metro Vancouver, if you own a home and your combined income in your house is $209,000, I don't, you're certainly not wealthy. I'm not you are sure not wealthy are. these days on that, yeah. No, and so that kind of kneecaps this thing out of the gate. But again, that's an ideological sort of almost gag reflex from the NDP government. They just cannot stomach helping people who make too much money, and they income test the heck out of everything. And the income level is low; it's very low. And so, but it's an innovative program. I don't think government's ever done anything quite like this. Uh, and uh, it's going to get a lot of press because it's certainly something that the government hasn't done uh, before. So the rest of the week, there'll be a lot more questions, I think, for David Eby at UBCM. And I know Ravi Kalon, his housing minister, did a sort of Q&A yesterday, which I was sort of reading through. I didn't hear anything new, but the government wants to list all the things it's doing and remind municipalities to get off your duff and uh, start approving housing. Or the big bad province is going to come in and start doing it for you, which is the sort of... They keep saying message that. To all the counselors. I know they keep. They've been saying that for the last couple of years, though. Yeah, yeah, they have, and uh, it's uh, the rubber will have to meet the road at some point. But they're giving them mostly until the end of the year, uh, and it, conveniently, Simi, conveniently, when this was sort of laid out the timeline of when they might start going after municipalities, very conveniently, it looks like it probably won't be until after the next election. <laughs> 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 so. There is, there is that to think about, uh, but but we'll see. What the That's next amazing year. timing. That's amazing. It's just, I mean, look, it's, you can't. Be, if you were to ask one of the many sort of spin masters in government, they'd say, "Come on, man, that's not that's not about an election." It's like, how dare you suggest that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but there's a bunch of other housing stuff that the government's working on, and I think for municipalities, they want to get a better picture of it this year because they're sort of watching their um, authority erode in a little way uh, in different areas and whether it's missing middle that they're having to bring in or other things they're they're changing in response to what they hear from premier eb and it's not just bc though is it though because now even the federal government has said if you come to us for housing help co-op building whatever we're going to demand some changes so the message is yeah. definitely changing from senior levels of government for sure and from um premier eb's housing doppelganger federally, which is conservative leader Pierre Polyevra, which is 
kind of mind blowing, but they're basically on the same page for housing. Their their plans are very very similar. And his he was just out in Vancouver the other week saying, you know what, we're going to get more money municipalities that build more. We're going to get less money than municipalities that don't. And that's essentially what the province is saying as well. And so the Fed's moving in that direction, um, which a guy who on the polls looks like he could be the next prime minister, uh, lines those two levels of government up. So interesting. Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the situation in Surrey right now, shall we? Because numbers are flying around everywhere these days when it comes to the police transition. But are any of them actually accurate? I mean, I will admit that I often wonder when it comes to this Surrey policing story, I mean, what is going on? How, how are we still talking about this? How is this not done yet? So the latest is that in the last week, Surrey Council made a very big deal about a memo that suggests the Surrey Police Service budget is suddenly ballooning, that the Surrey Police Service is suddenly saying it needs a huge budget increase compared to the originally city-approved budget. Well, now we're hearing from the Surrey Police Board that those numbers were not accurate at all, and the picture being provided is very misleading. Why is this coming out now? What is going on here? So Councillor Linda Annis is with us now to talk more about this. The Surrey First City Councillor from Surrey is with us. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, Councillor Annis, this is pretty frustrating for Surrey residents. Can you explain what is going on with these latest numbers? Well, it's very frustrating, not only for um, the residents of Surrey, but for council. We need to get the facts and we need to get the right numbers. Uh, Councillor Cooner put out uh, a memo to councillors last week indicating that the Surrey Police Service was going to be way over budget. I spoke to the general manager of our financial services and he confirms that that is not correct. Uh, They will be pretty much on budget this year. And of course, as we uh, stay with the transition, the Surrey Police Service Uh, budget uh, will need to increase as the RCMP budget decreases. Uh, But there's... the, the numbers certainly are not accurate, and there seems to be a huge political agenda here. Okay, so then where did these numbers come from? That's a very good question because I can't make heads nor tails out of it. Uh, they make absolutely no sense to me. I've looked at uh, the numbers that the city has. I've looked at uh, what the Surrey Police Service sent out, and they don't uh, speak to the numbers that Councillor Cooner is talking about. Quite frankly, I think we need to get everyone in one room and iron out these numbers and move forward and get on with this transition uh, because each and every day it drags on. It's costing the taxpayers of Surrey $266,000 a day or $8 million a month. So we need to put political agendas behind and get on with it. The province has said that this is what we need to do. We need to get on with it. Okay, so to be absolutely clear then, Councillor Annis, you were told by the Surrey, like the finance department at City Hall, that these numbers are not accurate. That's correct. So the budget, as far as you've heard from people at City Hall, is on track? We're on track right now, and certainly next year we're going to have to forecast more for Surrey Police Service as they begin their recruiting or uh, in the fall if they begin recruiting. But as we increase their budget, the RCMP budget will be decreasing because they will be you know, uh, winding down their operations and reducing the number of RCMP members uh, that are serving in Surrey. Okay, so then what happened here? How did these numbers get kind of blown out and put out there in the public as, oh my goodness, look at how much this budget is going up? 
Well, that's a very good question for Councillor Kuna because I have no idea. To me, it feels like just a tactic to stall uh, the transition. And, you know, quite frankly, I think the mayor needs to show a leadership role here and get on with it. Um, as they say, the longer this gets delayed, the more it's costing the taxpayers. It's interesting you mentioned that, that a leadership role, because that's something that Mayor Brenda Locke has been saying the province needs to do. So are you saying the mayor needs to step up? Well, this is our police force. This is the residents of Surrey's police force. I think the mayor, who's the chair of our city, she needs to take the leadership role. Ultimately, we need to make sure that we have the police service that we want serving us in the way that we want. And within the financial uh, restraints that we would like to put on them, that falls to the city. That's not the province's responsibility. You know, it's unfortunate, of course, that um, uh, the province, you know, is and this whole process is being stalemated, but we need to get on with it. And as part of the process, certainly Mayor Locke needs to be working closely with the province, with the federal government, RCMP and Surrey Police Service, as does all of council. So from your perspective on council, then, what do you see happening here? Like, is the process moving forward? What is going on? The process seems to be going nowhere, you know, and we've been again talking about it now for a couple of months. So there's another $16 million, you know, down the drain. We need to get on with it and we need to get on with it quickly. The longer it gets delayed, the more it costs the taxpayers of Surrey. And what are you hearing from residents? They're very frustrated. Um, You know, I think generally, no matter what side of the fence you sat on before, whether you wanted the RCMP or Surrey Police Service, the residents are saying, let's get on with it. Let's get it done. There's a lot of other stuff to be done in Surrey. We need to get our roads fixed. We need to get schools built. We've got infrastructure. We've got problems with our are um, having too many portables here in Surrey. We've got issues with hospitals. Let's start focusing on some of those issues and and get this behind us so that we uh, can make Surrey the great place that it is and should be. Uh, Councillor Annis, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. That's Linda Annis, a Surrey First City Councillor, talking about this story that's been around in Surrey now the last week. Uh, these outrageously huge numbers uh, from you know Surrey Police Service that their budget is going to go way up this year unexpectedly. These numbers were circulated in a memo that came from uh, Councillor Cooner on Surrey City Council. And, you know, Councillor Anna says she has spoken to budget officials at Surrey City Hall and they say no budget is on track. They don't know where these numbers came from. What is going on? What is going on in Surrey that they can't even agree on a set of numbers? They can't even get their own financial numbers in order and know what they are talking about with one collective voice. And if Mayor Locke wants leadership, I think she needs to look in the mirror on this. Like, just take, she is the mayor, right? Take charge, get this done, move your city forward. And I'm sure residents are very frustrated by what is going on there. Enough of the back and forth, back and forth, get it done. This is Mornings with Simi. It is National Gender Equality Week, meaning we spend a lot of time talking about that gender pay gap, and it is stubborn. Now, the theme this year is Stronger Together. Now, according to the Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equality, Kelly Padden, that is meant to inspire Canadians to continue working together to remove barriers. Like, that all sounds good. But again, this is a very stubborn gender pay gap. BC has the highest one in the country. So let's turn that back on government and ask them, how does the province plan on tackling it? Our contributor, Scott Chance, got the chance to chat with Kelly Padden to find out. 
Thank you so much for being here. We're talking about Gender Equality Week, International Equal Pay Day. Uh, these are big things. Can you sort of give us like a an overview of like where we're at on these issues? Because I think a lot of people sort of think like, oh, 2023, you know, we're we're civilized, we're an advanced society. These aren't things that still are are occurring, but they this really is still a thing that we need to address, isn't it? Absolutely, and. I mean, everyone deserves to be paid fairly. And we know that our communities are stronger when everyone's treated equally. So too many women in BC are still making less than men. Last year, for example, women in BC earned 17% less than men. And I understand that not everybody is aware of this gap. Uh, I hear from people how important it is um, to make sure that everyone is paid equally for equal work. And this applies to gender diverse people as well, right? It absolutely does. So we're the first jurisdiction to make sure that um, we are not stuck in the gender binary and we're working along the full gender continuum. Okay. Explain to me what the Pay Transparency Act is and how it works. I'm so glad you asked. It's, it's, It's a really important step towards pay equity. So we introduced and passed legislation earlier this year um, that outlined four different ways that we were going to um, advance the work on pay equity. So coming up, like the, the, the relevant stuff for right now um, is that, you know, coming up in November 1st, we are going to be seeing that um, employers are need to be posting salary and salary ranges in all publicly posted jobs as well as employers of certain sizes will start to report out on their gender pay gap. And that's in addition to uh, work that already came into effect once the legislation was passed, which prohibited certain behaviors like asking about pay or salary history during negotiations for a new job, or uh, it prohibited as well employers punishing employees for discussing their pay information. Yeah, which is such a funny thing. You know, there's still this this sort of idea around salary and pay that it's kind of like this last holdout of, um, you know, oh, you don't talk about that topics. Like, I think we've kind of advanced to this place where, you know, hey, everyone is, you know, comfortable talking about like, and we're getting really accepting, but we're holding out on salary uh, for whatever reason, even talking amongst our friends. Like, do you have any insight as to why? Because I think we know that once we start making these conversations more more commonplace and, and we get used to them, that this will benefit the, the people that it needs to benefit, people, women and people who are gender diverse. Why do you think we've, we've held out so long and it's such an uncomfortable thing for us to talk about? I love that you asked this question because I hear from people um, all the time about how important it is to have the information we need to make informed decisions. And I hear you when you say, you know, this is still kind of a a little bit of a taboo topic. But in reality, we are talking about so much so that we can make informed decisions and so that we can make the choices that benefit, you know, our businesses, our families, and ultimately our communities in our province as well. The pay transparency legislation and the, the commitment to pay equity really makes us all stronger So I'm very excited um, that people are starting to talk and question, um, and we can all make really solid, strong 
informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. I do agree that like we're starting to have that, but you know, it's just, it felt like in so many ways, you know, we're, we're so comfortable talking about so many other things, but this is, yeah, still just seen as one of those taboo topics. So what, how do you think, um, or how, how are we going to enforce transparency legislation? Because I think that even though, um, you know, it's a wonderful step, offices and businesses, they don't love it, right? Like they're going to try to to hold back, you know, we're, our, all of our job offers are still going to say personal and confidential. Um, so how, how do we keep this moving in the right direction and not have it just, you know, sort of be one of those under the radar things that nobody really talks about? Oh, we have this legislation, but it's not really being enforced. Well, I think that one really important thing is that this legislation approaches the issue from an education point of view. Um, the legislation itself is reviewable after five years. And so if there is an enforcement um, issue, we can take a look at that. That being said, I'm really excited for businesses, especially small businesses. Um, we know that it's hard to attract uh, employees. It's very competitive right now. Being a champion employer and uh, an equitable employer and being able to really showcase that, I think gives, gives employers a leg up. Also, pay discrimination is prohibited under the BC Human Rights Code. So, I mean, if employees are experiencing discrimination in the workplace, including pay discrimination, they, they can file um, with the BC Human Rights Tribunal. But our focus as well here is really bringing employers along, um, building some really, really strong employers who are focused on equity, because at the end of the day, that does help their bottom line. That is Kelly Padden, the Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, talking to our contributor, Scott Shantz. It is Gender Equality Week, and this week we are talking as well about that gender pay gap. This is Mornings with Simi. Canada is in kind of unprecedented territory this morning after pointing the finger at India and accusing the Indian government of being involved in the assassination of a Canadian on Canadian soil. That's a huge charge. And we expelled an Indian diplomat. India responded this morning by expelling a Canadian diplomat. We've cancelled trade talks. We have informed our allies. You know, from a national security perspective, what else or what should Canada be doing at this point? To join us now to talk more about this is Dan Stanton. Dan is the director of the National Security Program at the University of Ottawa and former executive director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Dan, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Now, for a prime minister to do this, Dan, to stand up the way that he did yesterday and say the things that he said, can you give us an idea of what prompts that behind the scenes? Well, it, it looks to me like there was very solid intelligence leads. We're not, we're not talking about criminal evidence that would stand up in court. But uh, obviously, Ottawa or you know, the government has received um, solid indicators, possibly corroborated uh, possibly multiple source, enough to give confidence to the PM to make those statements and then the action we saw subsequent to that. There was no equivocation at all in his words. It was quite clear accusing India of doing this. So from your perspective, you believe that the threshold for that would have been very high? Would have been very high. And I know from my 32 years in service, most of it in, in collection, uh, you know, CSIS goes to great lengths to sort of stand behind their brand in terms of the reliability of the information. So this, this, would, have been, uh, this would have been thoroughly assessed and rigorously assessed 
uh, and and tested and evaluated that it's it's solid. They're they're not just going to tell the prime minister or, or tell the cabinet that uh, you know they think this happened. It would be pretty pretty strong. What has led up to this? I mean, Canada hasn't always had the best relationship with India, has it? No, I mean historically it hasn't, especially when you go back in the earlier years when when there was extremism and when it was a growing concern and and you know we know about Air India and, and things like that. So from an Indian perspective, there you know there wasn't uh, I guess you could say the action taken that they expected. But then it gets it gets it gets back on there. I mean, India is seen as a a partner and an ally of sorts, and but there's always been these these issues. I think from from the Canadian standpoint, in, into their treatment of of minorities, um, you know, religious minorities, cultural minorities, and uh, trying to get on, the, uh, you know, get that dialogue with India, and uh, obviously it doesn't seem to work. Is part of that complication then, I guess, to help the broader Canadian public understand this, is that if these some of these minorities you talked about in India are not the minorities here in Canada, it is the larger Indian population here in Canada. Well, what it is is that what we would regard as dissent and free speech, and you know, uh, from the Indian state perspective, it's seen as a threat to national security. So, for example, the the uh, the Sikh minority in in India. Uh, any of their aspirations, even nonviolent aspirations, are seen as a threat. Uh, we see this with the Muslim population as well. So India deals with them as though they are, you know, threats to their national security and terrorism, uh, which doesn't uh, segue well with Canada, which, of course, we, we need, you know, we need to see evidence. We need to see proof that someone's a terrorist and, and so on. And the fact that they're just speaking out about things in the homeland doesn't necessarily make them a terrorist. So there's, there's sort of a, we don't really have the same language in that. And India is seeing this as all threats to the integrity of their state. And, and it appears to be they're going outside their borders with some sort of extrajudicial killing, which is, which is uh, a game changer. We've yeah. never seen this before. That's what I was just about to ask you. How extraordinary is this situation potentially? It's extraordinary because, you know, we have this constellation of pariah states like Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I won't mention too many more. But where we sort of expect that behavior, we don't expect that from India. It's a member of G20, and Canada's had historically, you know, good relations with India. And so this this activity, it's 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 really uh, it's quite an outlier there. It's 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 it, it is unprecedented. In my 32 years in national security, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, foreign interference, I've never seen anything like this. What tools are left to us, though, Dan? At this point, like, what can Canada do? Tough. That's a good question. I mean, so far, I, I mean, I think right now the ball's in India's court. Canada's made this announcement, made these accusations. There's been, you know, expelling of, uh, of diplomats. Um, but the ball is in India's court, in my opinion. They're going to have to, at some point, acknowledge this. They're going to have to cooperate. There may be some, some extradition issues involved uh, with, with some of the accused. Who knows? It looks like the government's made efforts in the last few weeks quietly bilaterally to get india to cooperate and i imagine there's some sort of frustration level there that that led to what we saw yesterday in the house of commons do we potentially have support from our allies on this that does that complicate things i would be no i would have no doubt on that i mean you know certainly the security intelligence partners work quite closely and they would have a vested interest in this not only countries like you know the uk us australia New Zealand, where they have, you know, South Asian populations, they have Sikh communities. But 
even just their security intelligence and sharing and cooperating with India and things like this, um, they're probably having a lot of deep concerns right now in terms of, uh, you know, who they're dealing with. So there would be pressure there. I think behind the scenes, there would be pressure from allies of Canada. We're just not going to hear it in the media. Yeah. Do you, when you see what's going on, especially with the G20 summit, now we're all looking at it in a different light, right? Uh, Where do you see that, the pressure behind the scenes? Well, it seems, I mean, I I actually, when I saw that and I saw the prime minister's, uh, you know, lack of warmth there, I, I did think it may have something to do with this or certainly had to do with foreign interference in Canada. And so I think it's simply that this eclipses all other, you know, relationships or efforts or trade, what have you, cooperation, fighting counter, fighting terrorism, things like that. Uh, and so it's impossible for the government to act as though it's just business as usual. Um, and who knows? We don't know the extent of the threat, too. There might be some other strands or dimensions to this that, that hasn't been made public in terms of uh, Indian, uh, Indian interference and Indian, perhaps, uh, murder in, in Canada. So, so I, I think the chill is unavoidable to a certain degree. And it is kind of, I think, refreshing to know that our government puts the security of Canadians first uh, other than a, before the bilateral relationship with another state. Because in the end, as you point out, that is what we're talking about. Once again, here, it's foreign interference. It's just a country that we weren't talking about before. Exactly. And that's really the question comes down to, you know, a government that won't protect its citizens. um, Those are are pretty primordial issues. And so this government, obviously, yesterday was a good demonstration of that, is saying that, no, we put the safety and security of Canadians, certainly in Canada, it's sacrosanct. And so all these other issues and trade and, you know, uh, all the warm feelings and everything are going to have to be put in the back burner until this is sorted out. Do you expect the tough talk then to continue? This sounds like we're going to have a bit of a a freeze on Canada-India relations. Sounds like it. I mean, it it just depends. I mean, this is just a side of India we're seeing. It's it's an autocratic state, doesn't treat its minorities well. And uh, this is how they treat uh, allies and friends like Canada. I'm saying, assuming this is all true and, and all aspects of it are true. And so far, it looks like it is. But it, it does show that the, the other side of India that, that Canada has to deal with or the Canadian government has to deal with. Right. But to be clear and, and to kind of go back to what you were saying at the beginning, from your experience was 30 plus years in intelligence services for a prime minister to stand up and do what he did yesterday would mean a, a level of information that we that is kind of solid. Absolutely. There, there's no equivocation on it. So it, and it would be, you know, it would be shared with allies as well. So prior to this, uh, there'd be a lot of dialogue and a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, is this something you see in other countries as well? So, so I don't think for the prime minister to make those statements and then the follow-up action yesterday with the PNG, uh, it's, it's sort of like it reached a saturation point. And I guess they had to act. Dan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. We really appreciate that conversation. That is Dan Stanton. Now, Dan is the director of the National Security Program at the University of Ottawa and the former executive director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. So he knows of what he speaks on this front. And there is more to come on that story. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of housing news this week. I mean, it's definitely on the minds of delegates at the Union of BC Municipalities. They've got a convention going on this week. That's where all this news is kind of coming from. And that's why also this week you're hearing all these announcements from the provincial government on the housing front. Uh, For instance, we talked with Rob Shaw earlier about this one issue, the Secondary Suite Incentive Program. I find this one interesting because it's so narrow. And I would be curious to hear from people if if they think this applies to them. So this program is going to encourage the creation of secondary suites or what they call accessory dwellings on a homeowner's property. But even though it involves a potentially forgivable loan to eligible homeowners of $40,000, it's the people who are eligible for this that I have a lot of questions about, right? Like there is a cap on how much total household income there can be. You have to be able to rent it to uh, a below market rental rate. So how much uptake will there actually be on that? And then there was this announcement of a new kind of website, a one-stop shop They call it the Single Housing Application Service. And this has to do with uh, being a digital platform. It's designed to streamline the permitting process for home builders in BC. So what does that mean? Like if you need a provincial permit, that's where this, you know, where you would go for this. Uh, It's uh, things like developments, water licenses, uh, let's see, contaminated site cleanups, road rezoning, and more. So again, great idea, But how many people will it actually impact? That is the question for that. Will this mean that more housing will be built? So to recap some of this housing discussion that we had, let's just go back a little bit to what we talked about with Rob Shaw this morning, political commentator for Czech News. Part of it was pretty boring. There was like a new guide to uh, building a secondary suite in your home which, uh, you know, doesn't really warrant the premier and everyone coming out to a a press conference. There's like a one-stop permit shop, which we already knew uh, was being created. But I think it was more of a kind of kickoff of the Union BC municipalities meeting where housing is a number one topic. And so the premier wanted to sort of re-announce a couple of things. What I found interesting is buried sort of within that is a document on the government's website that lays out sort of the details of a new program I think a lot of people are going to be interested in, which is the government helping you pay to build a secondary suite in your home. So if you have a house, you think your basement might be a good suite that you could rent out, but you haven't kind of gone through that process, there's a program that's starting in April, and it will match 50% of the cost of your renos with a forgivable loan up to 40 grand. So you get 40 grand free. Um, But there are some rules here. You have to have a maximum household income. So everyone in the house uh, of under $209,000. Okay, so there are some rules here. Sounds good in the beginning, right? Let's get all of this worked out now with the housing minister, Ravi Kalon, who joins us to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Good. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the secondary suite program. Like, how many people do you think that's actually going to help? Well, this is a pilot program that hasn't happened anywhere elsewhere. Uh, And so we're starting, uh, you know, a little bit smaller. We're projecting 1,000 units every single year. So 1,000 units this year, 1,000 next. So it'll be rolling. Uh, And again, our hope is that we get the support folks who are uh, land rich but, uh, but don't have the cash to actually build uh, in a unit in their backyard or have a garden suite, et cetera. So 
uh, it's, it's something new. It's innovative. Someone uh, pr- you know proposed the idea, and we said at this stage we'll try anything to get more units uh, online. Okay, so that's just a pilot project then. But let's talk as well about this digital platform, like streamlining housing permits. How much of an impact do you expect that to have? Well, the reforms that we announced in January around uh, bringing uh, provincial permitting in one place has already started to have an impact. I've had a conversation with many private sector developers, one not-for-profit, who say, finally, permits are starting to flow, which is really positive. So the announcement yesterday was that uh, we are now setting up a one-stop shop for anyone that requires a permit from the provincial government. Now, over 90% of the permits required for housing are still local government, but there are some that come close to a highway or touch bodies of water where they need special permits from the province. And so what will happen now is anyone that needs that type of permit, they can reach out from one contact point and a navigator will help navigate with them what needs to go where, who is going to be looking at it so that we can help, you know, essentially... uh, shepherd any project through the approval process in a much uh, quicker way. Okay, and so how? when will that be up and running? It's up and running now. Uh, and so that was the announcement yesterday. Uh, that process is up and running. Uh, any uh, builder, not-for-profit, private, can now go to that one-stop shop website, uh, and there's a contact information on there, and then an individual will help them figure out who needs to see what. And, you know, often what happens is they know we need to go to the Ministry of of transportation. But who in the Ministry of Transportation needs to see this is really a challenge. And so we're going to walk uh, any proponent through the process so that there's no more guessing, there's no more uncertainty. Uh, again, we want to show local governments that we have some role in this, we're taking steps to address it, and now we're asking local governments to help work with us to reduce their processes as well. Now, I know you were at the UBCM yesterday. You have been talking to local governments. You've been talking to councillors and mayors. What is the message that you are hearing from them? I'm hearing that they they want to be part of the solution, that they want to be part of helping address the housing crisis in British Columbia. They want details. They know that we have got a lot of legislation coming in the next two months that is going to fundamentally change how we build in this uh, housing in this province. And so they want to be partners in it. They were trying to get an understanding of what we're doing, how we can align our goals together. And so, you know, generally positive. Uh, Some communities have unique challenges, and uh, and that's what we're doing. We're meeting with community one by one to identify what those unique challenges are and find ways to find solutions together. Okay, and what is that message then that you want to give to them? Because you talked about the province doing its part. Do you feel that municipalities still have a lot more to do? Well, the message uh, that I shared yesterday and certainly the Premier has been sharing is that status quo is no longer an option. Uh, We must find ways to do things differently. We must find ways to do them faster. Uh, Just because we've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean we have to continue to do it. So that's been my message to folks. Uh, We believe there needs to be major reforms to how we approve projects, uh, how our uh, systems are built around building and approving housing. And, uh, and that's exactly what uh, we're advancing part of UBCM in, in, in the coming months. Do you feel any frustration with this, Minister Kalon? Because you've been talking about this. I know Premier Eby, when he was a housing minister, he talked about this. And yet municipalities still seem a little reluctant to move on that permitting, like streamlining permitting and approving more projects. Well, what's frustrating for me is that, I'm, you know, in my role, I have individuals reaching out to me every day telling me about how they're struggling. And so, uh, yeah, I feel a real urgency every single morning I get up 
uh, with like, hey, like we got to move faster, we got to move quicker. And, you know, I would say majority of communities get it. Uh, they're on board. There always are some who just just don't want to be part of it and don't want to be, um, you know, uh, don't understand that they have a role to play in being part of the solution. And so that's sometimes where my frustration comes. But, you know, we're going. We have to go. Uh, we're moving forward. Uh, and, and, you know, at this stage, we can't be too worried about her feelings. We have to make sure that we get the housing that uh, folks in our communities need. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sydney. Be safe. Ravi Kailan, BC's Minister of Housing. So that is the message to municipalities, delegates as well, at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention in not worry less about hurt feelings, but move forward, approve more projects. Now, that could be your municipality that they are talking about, maybe moving a little slowly when it comes to getting things approved. And the provincial government is saying that change is coming. So do you approve of that? Do you think, yeah, time to bring the hammer down, get more stuff built and approved? Or do you think, no, 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 my municipality is doing the right thing? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've talked a lot this year about problems with our 911 system. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that you need to call 911 and you do and nobody answers or it rings for a really long time or it takes forever for that help to arrive. That is just an unacceptable situation for anyone to find themselves in. So the struggles are real. It's an ongoing problem, but municipalities are now getting involved as well. There's a motion that is coming to the Union of BC Municipalities tomorrow, as a matter of fact, to get everyone on board with the idea of increasing funding for 911 and actually adding a fourth call option. Like right now when you call 911, they ask you, is it police, is it fire, is it ambulance? Well, the fourth call option would be, is this a mental health emergency? Let's talk to the person who's introducing this. Uh, Craig Hodge is with us now, Coquitlam City Councillor Chair for the UBCM Community Safety Committee and co-chair of the RCMP Contract Management Committee. Councillor Hodge, thank you for joining us. Uh, Good morning, Simi. Let's talk about this motion. What's it all about? Well, I think when you go back and you look at the 911 system, it was first implemented in BC back in the late 1980s. And before that time, you would have to call or direct dial your local police department fire ambulance directly from your your home landline. And some of your listeners may remember the old telephone books. And when you opened up the first flap, the inside of the cover was a full page of all the emergency numbers for each city in the lower mainland. You remember you you may have had a sticker on your phone, your bedroom phone, your kitchen phone with the seven-digit emergency number. Or if you couldn't find that, you you dialed out zero. And the telephone operator would look it up and, and transfer you. So the addition of the 911 number really replaced the telephone operator, and it simplified the call process by just giving that easy to remember 911 number. And uh, and you, now when you call that 911 number, a 911 operator answers the call, hopefully immediately, and says, "Police, fire, ambulance, what city?" And they forward that call to the correct dispatcher, who then you know dispatches help. And, and now, back 30, 40 years ago when we started, initially those calls were directed to a dispatcher in your city's fire hall or the police station. But following the Stanley Cup riot in 1994, it demonstrated the need to consolidate all the emergency communications in one center, get all the first responders on the same radio system, and that led to the creation of, of ECOM. And, and this is really now what we need to, to fix, because... 
over time, many cities contracted with ECOM to take over those local police dispatching and, and other communications. So now, if you call 911 and you say to the operator, Port Moody Fire Department or Vancouver Police Department, that transfer is probably being made to a dispatcher who's in the same room on the other side of the room. And in fact, dispatchers in that room are dispatching emergency responders all over the lower mainland. But the system needs help um, because um, today's 911 call answer service has expanded to handle 99% of all 911 calls in the province. And it needs uh, a technology upgrade uh, because it's still based on the old landline phone system rather than uh, a digital-based system, which we now need so the callers can use some of the features on their smartphones, uh, you know, such as texting, sending photos. So right now, that's that's in its work in the works, um, but and there's some money to help with the the technology transition. But it also we also need to increase the capacity and the staff to handle the increased call volume, so that we don't see a repeat of what happened two years ago during the during the heat dome. So that's why I'm bringing forward the resolution, and we're going to call on the province to uh, do a couple of things: one, increase the funding for ecom through a levy on cell phones. Uh, create a new governance structure that's more provincially focused. And as you mentioned, we're also going to be asking that we add a new service to 911 so that when you call, it will be police, fire, ambulance, and mental health emergency. Right. And uh, we think that's going to be key to improving service, and certainly it's going to help with the number of calls we think that are being sent to the police department for mental health issues when really there's a better option for responding to those calls. Okay, I want to get into that in a moment, but just let me ask you about that levy you talked about. So isn't there already a levy on cell phones for 911? No, no, there is on home on landlines. And this is one of the problems because more oh. and more people are transitioning away from landlines to cell phones. And so this is what other provinces have done is in order to fund their uh, their 911 system, they've, they've moved that um, levy over onto cell phones and away from the old landline system. Okay, that makes more sense because I thought, wait a minute, I thought I already paid this. So you're right. So that money has been diminishing. How much of a levy is it? Uh, well, that hasn't been determined yet because we don't know what the total funding is going to be required to, to, to fund the system. So what we're asking is the province is just to find a way to find more funding. And, uh, and this would be a way past, to do that. There's been some reluctance to move to the cell phone, but, uh, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. Otherwise, we're going to have a system that's broken. Right. But if the funding has already been there, people have already been paying this. You're talking about just moving it from what used to be their landline to what is now their regular phone. Essentially, it would be finding and 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 certainly there's more cell phones out there than landlines. So presumably that will help to increase the amount of funding that's going to be coming into to fund the system. Okay, and now let's talk about this fourth call option for mental health emergency, because I am really intrigued by this. How would that work then? So essentially what happens now, um, you call 911 and, well, okay, somebody's having a health, a mental health emergency, you may not even know that it's, a, that it's a mental health issue. But the default is, well, we'll send the police because the police are always there. That's, they're there 24-7, so that's who gets dispatched. And we're sort of saying that, no, that may not be the correct response. In fact, the majority of calls may not require police intervention at all. So what would happen is that uh, the call would be directed to a mental health professional. Uh, that would lessen the load on police. And that professional with, with trained in mental health issues would make a, de- a determination. Maybe the call gets forwarded to the crisis line 
and that you just need to be on the phone talking with somebody. Maybe it is an actual health call. Maybe we send a, what we call a, a PACT or a peer assist team uh, out to the house with, uh, with mental health professionals to deal with the family in the home. Or maybe... It, they determine that, yeah, this is serious. We better send the police. So, But the idea is somebody would make that determination at the start of the call, not halfway through the call or right, halfway through the incident. This also puts the onus on municipalities then, too, doesn't it, to have a team that could respond if it is a mental health emergency, though? Correct. And uh, the province has just funded a number of uh, what we call PAC teams. Uh, Newest Minster has one. North Shore has one. Uh, Victoria, they've announced four more. I think uh, Kamloops, a couple of others. And applications are being accepted for, uh, for another four. So that would give options in those communities. The point is that when you call this 911 call and it got forward to the mental health call, they would know in your community who to respond and who has these teams and, and who doesn't, it would be seamless. It's just like when you phone the ambulance. The ambulance dispatcher is, is a health professional who decides, okay, yeah, we need to get there right away. We, maybe we need to send an advanced life support team. Maybe you can wait an hour and we'll get there on, on a lower level priority. But at least it would be handled much like the ambulance system where somebody would figure out what the issue is and what the level of priority is for this call. Okay, so have you talked to fellow councillors or other municipalities about that? Do they have the ability to say, yeah, you know what, we could build that? I, I, I've had a lot of support from this. Um, a lot of people have said, why not? Uh, certainly the, uh, the uh, roundtable that's reviewing the, uh, the, the Police Act, the uh, group that was put together to look at that, have said we need to find a better way of dealing with uh, mental health calls for policing. And so this would be one of the ways to, to achieve that as well. Okay, so this is going to come forward tomorrow. I guess you're hoping once it, let's say it does get passed, Councillor Hodge, what happens after that? So we, we will send uh, our recommendations to the provincial government for, for review, and uh, they'll understand that, you know, we've got uh, our, our delegates behind it, our municipalities behind that, and so hopefully this will help to uh, bring this forward. This is an idea that's being discussed. The Ecom Board is aware of it. Uh, um, the professionals in the field are aware of it, and, and we feel that it's time as municipalities to put our support behind this idea and see if we can't actually move this this forward along with uh, a, a change of, uh, of governance for for 911 as well and getting the funding in and uh, it, you know because we have to upgrade the system for the new technology this is an opportunity to actually do a reset on a really good system that's 40 years old and and needs a, a reset in a number of areas both on technology the staffing levels and everything because it's a great system when it works it works really well and we've got to get back to the level of service that we had uh, you know 10 15 years ago so interesting uh, thank you so much for your time on that Great, thank you. And good luck with the motion. That is Craig Hodge. Craig Hodge is a Coquitlam City Councillor, but also Chair for the UBCM Community Safety Committee and Co-Chair of the RCMP Contract Management Committee, uh, talking about a motion that he's bringing forward tomorrow at the UBCM convention to increase funding for 911. So that charge that you used to have, if you've gotten rid of it, on your landline, used to have a special levy there to fund 911, 
their their idea is to move that over to people's cell phones now because landlines are becoming few and far between and they need to increase funding for 911. But also I'm really intrigued by this idea of the fourth call option for a mental health emergency. So if you call 911 right now, they ask you police, fire, ambulance, and you go, oh, police, but maybe it's a mental health emergency that you are dealing with or need some help with. And that adding that fourth option, is this a mental health emergency? would direct you to a different group of people who would obviously respond quite differently than police would. Now, is that, I mean, that's a very intriguing idea to help tackle our mental health crisis.